Let me start by, by asking you this. Has something like this ever happened to you? Have you ever woken up in the morning? It's a tick so far. Yes, something like that has happened to you. It's a good start. Have you ever woken up in the morning? The alarm clock's going. You kind of give yourself a little pep talk. I can do this. I can roll over. I can get out of bed. You get up. Yes, I made it. First miracle of the day. Fantastic, right? You get out of bed. You waddle in through to the kitchen. Once you get there, you turn on the coffee plunger. Who likes to start the morning with coffee? Are we coffee people here? Great. Never had a coffee in my life, but I'm sure it's amazing. You take your, your coffee plunger, and then in, in, in you, you realise, as you're looking around, you're the only one that's awake in the house. Or so you think. You've got your little son sitting over in the corner, and he's playing his little video game as he, as he likes to do. Not much of a sleeper. And so you say to him, oh, morning, buddy. How'd you sleep? Nothing. Absolute donuts. Oh, hey, what, what game you play? Uh, nothing. He's just so fixated on his game, it's like he doesn't even see you there. He doesn't even notice you. There's just nothing, abs- absolute nothing happening. You go back into your bedroom, and as, as you're getting dressed, your wife's kind of half asleep in bed, and you say, oh, morning, honey, how'd you sleep? You feeling okay some morning? She's been a bit sick the last couple of days. Once again, nothing. No response. She kind of rolls over and, and goes back to sleep. Weird. Has that ever happened to you? You then go, well, that's okay. It's, it's still early in the morning. And so you head out the door, and as you're walking out the door, you, you, see, you see Greg over the road, your next-door neighbour. And he's walking his beautiful little puppy in the morning, as, as he likes to do. And you know, you know Greg's a lovely guy. And you say, hey, good morning, Greg. How are you going today? Top of the morning to you. And, and once again, nothing. Greg just keeps wandering by, looking at the trees, just kind of dawdling on his own little world. It's like you're invisible. It's like he can't see you, it's like he can't notice you. And, and you get this sense that something's not quite right, and, and anyways, you, you don't have time to think about it because work starts in, in 15 minutes, and you know the drive there takes 13 minutes, so you get in your car, and, and as you're driving along, along Main Road in, in the quiet suburbs of your area, all of a sudden, cars just start carving you up. They start cutting in front of you. you you're just driving along at 60k an hour, and all of a sudden, from the side street, someone turns out, and you're thinking, what's going on? Can they not see me? Can they not see that I'm, I'm here? Can they not see my car? What's, what's wrong with the world this morning? Get into your office. <sighs> Strange morning. Hey, scratching your head. Something's not quite working. You sit down at your desk and you look at your watch and you go, well, perfect timing, 8.58. My morning meeting starts at 9 o'clock and, and I wore a suit today. And for me, that's, that's an unusual thing to do. I don't often wear suits. Weddings and meetings with the CEO. And today happens not to be a wedding, but it's a meeting with the CEO. And so I need to be ready for this. And whew, Big breath. You're calming yourself down. You're ready for the meeting. And then you see him. He's coming around the corner. He's got that big boss-like walk with him. He's walking around the corner, pops his head into his office, looks around a bit confused, and then he, he turns around and he walks, walks back out again. And you're kind of sitting there like... Right, okay, it's a bit odd, and, and he comes again, looks around, and, and then he comes back out again, this time a little, bit, a little bit crosser, and you're thinking, right, okay, the CEO, he must, he must have something a little bit more important on his mind than, than having a meeting with me, and so you go, well, I may as well make you some my time, and you, you open up your emails, and, and you find on your email an angry email from your boss saying, well, why aren't you at your meeting? What do you mean, why I'm sitting in, in my chair in my desk? You've just seen me or have you? 
And you think, that's strange. And you check your phone and you get a text from your wife saying, your kid's crying because you didn't give him a kiss in the morning and, and even say good morning to him. And, and neither did you hurt her to you after she's been feeling sick. And you're like, what is going wrong? It's like no one's seen you this morning. You feel invisible. Something's not quite right. No one can hear you. No one can hear you. No one can understand you. No one cares. No one's getting it. And then you wake up and you realise it's been a dream. And in your dream, you really have been invisible. I wonder, have you ever had a dream dream like that? Dreams are these weird and wonderful things. Sometimes dreams can be a bit terrifying. Sometimes dreams can be a bit thought-provoking. Sometimes dreams can be quite emotionally stimulating. Have you ever had the dream that you're invisible? It's quite, quite a painful existence. Uh, I remember not, not having a dream like that, but, but a dream where I've been invisible and waking up and, and being really shaken. You can't get back to sleep and, and tears and, and emotions, and you just kind of, what's going on? It's a pretty, pretty average dream to wake up to, but it's an even more terrifying existence to live in, to live in the reality where you feel that you're invisible, to live in a reality where you feel no one can see you, no one can hear you, no one notices you, and no one cares for you. In the Bible, there's a woman, a woman called Hagar. Now, Hagar gets what it means to live a life where she feels invisible. Hagar understands what it means to be someone who feels like no one sees her, no one hears her, no one knows her, no one cares for her. And, that, and that's Hagar's experience. And I, I wonder today, is that kind of your experience? Is that where you're at? Or equally, as, as Sky was sharing before, is that someone that you, you know? Is that someone close to you and that's their experience? Well, this, this would be very much a, a message for you some morning. We're going to be looking at, at Genesis 16 with the story of Hagar, but first let me pray before we open, or open, up, open up the Word of God. Jesus, I want to pray that as I speak, there would be a stillness in my own heart and in the hearts of my brothers and sisters who I'm speaking to, that they would hear your words, that they would be your words, and as we unpack your, your story of Hagar, your precious, precious creation, that you would speak life into this narrative, that you would speak life into this event in history and breathe afresh on it today into, into our circumstances, into our day-to-day realities. So would you open our hearts and would you draw us to you to hear your voice, Jesus, for each and every one of us. Amen. So Genesis 16, let me invite you to, to open up your Bibles if you've, if you've got them with you. We'll be kind of hinging in on yeah, verse 16 to verse, uh, sorry, verse 6 to, to 16 or so to the end of the chapter. But um, to, get, to get our head around that part of the, the passage, we have to understand the, the original context. So we have to understand verse 1 to 5 and what's, what's going on there. Okay, so Genesis 16, verse 1 and 2. Here we get introduced to the three main characters in this narrative. Okay, we've got Abram, later called Abraham. We've got Sarai, later called Sarah. You might be familiar with those two people. And then we've got this Egyptian maidservant or this Egyptian slave called Hagar. Hagar, not a very common name. I've never heard of anyone else called Hagar. But, but there are three characters. Okay? So verse 1 and 2 introduces us to the three characters. The other thing that verse 1 and 2 does is it introduces us to the crisis. Most narratives start off with a crisis, a problem, something that needs to be resolved. And then the, the, the rest of the narrative is about how you go about solving that. 
And the crisis in this narrative at the start of chapter 16 of Genesis is that Abraham's been promised by God descendants, descendants being children, and to have children, it doesn't work with a wife that's barren. And Sarah, for all her life, has been barren and so unable to produce children, meaning unable to fulfill the promise that God has given her. And so that's the problem. And so verse 1 and 2, we've got the characters and we've got the problem. And so Sarai goes, hey, I'm going to come up with a plan. I'm going to fix this problem myself. And that's what the next couple of verses is. This is Sarah's plan. Okay? And I've kind of got uh, four, four points of Sarah's plan, four points of the, the opening five or six verses of this narrative that just kind of paint some context to, to Hagar's experience in the wilderness. All right? So may, many of you will probably be familiar with this passage, but my encouragement this morning would be, as we go through these first five verses particularly, you know, put yourself in the shoes of Hagar, yeah? or probably more accurately, put yourself in the feet of Hagar because Hagar probably didn't have shoes. Okay. <laughs> so step number one in, in this narrative is that um, Sarah, takes, Sarah takes Hagar and he gives her to Abraham to sleep with. All right? There's a couple of interesting observations to make here is that when Sarah talks about Hagar or when Sarah talks with Hagar, there, there is no mention of her name. To, Hagar, uh, to Sarah, Hagar doesn't have a name. She's simply the maidservant or the slave, the slave girl. Yeah. There's no identification with her as a, as a person. She's simply property in a possession. And so she's identified as this maidservant or this slave, and she's instructed what to do. There's no, no opinion of Hagar asked. There's no permission of Hagar asked. It's simply, no, Hagar, you as the slave girl, you are going to go and you're going to sleep with Abram. Interestingly, because of that, what Sarai has to do in order for, for that to happen is that Sarai has to get Abraham to take Hagar to be uh, his, wi- his, his wife. Yeah, his wife. Has to get Sarah to be his, Hagar to be his wife, sorry. So um, you're probably thinking that's a bit weird that the wife of Abraham is, is getting Abraham to take another wife. Ancient, ancient kind of understanding was that was a common thing. Okay, so there's actually in um, kind of ancient uh, marriage contracts, there's these kind of subcategories that talk about if the wife is barren, they've got to kind of find a surrogate to, to take the place so that the, the husband can have a son to continue the line. Okay, it's all about descendants in the ancient world. That's really important. And so Sarai goes, hey, Abraham, I want you to take Hagar and I want you to take her as your wife and I want you to sleep with her. Okay, it's really important. That was Sarah's call. Sarah, Sarah made that decision. Hold on to that because that, that becomes really important later. What happens next? Hera, Haggai, Hagar, Hagar becomes pregnant. Okay, I told you these names were, were not common names. Hagar becomes pregnant. And so you've got this um, wife, Sarai, who's trying to... Trying to um, become pregnant for, for the entire time that she's been married to Abraham, which is seemingly decades, and it, and it hasn't happened once. And then you've got Hagar, who in seemingly a really short period of time becomes pregnant. And so suddenly there's going to be this tension here naturally. Okay? And then step, step three, Sarah feels despised by Hagar. Sarah feels despised by Hagar. Verse 4, you can, you can read it there. It says, When she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So the natural question then, when I read this, I go, what does it mean that she treated Sarai with contempt? 
What does it mean for Hagar to treat Sarai with contempt? The word, word contempt there is qualal, all right? Um, it, it, it describes this idea of to lighten, okay? And so it's kind of like um, if, if you, uh, it, it's used in other senses to, to curse, and if, if you curse, you're signing up lightening the respect that you place on that person. And so in this sense, it's kind of Hagar's implying to Sarai that she's lightening her view of her. Okay, it might be that Hagar is like, I'm pregnant now, I feel a bit superior, and suddenly, or I'm Abraham's wife, I feel a bit superior, and suddenly there's this, there's this dissonance in the, Hagar doesn't feel like she's just the slave girl anymore, and Sarah doesn't feel like she's the only wife, and she's the top dog. And so there's this kind of rivalry going on there. Okay? So that's what the contempt might mean. Okay? It might be Hagar acting in such a way that narrows that gap, and Sarah's not very happy with that. Okay? And so she feels despised by Hagar. The other option is that it's actually this perceived um, level of contempt by Hagar. So Sarah feels that Hagar is despising her. Hagar might not be doing anything wrong. But think about it this way. Yeah? If, if you are the wife of Abraham, this, this wealthy land owner, full of possessions, and you can't get um, a baby for, for Abraham to carry on um, his, his descendants, you, you would feel like a bit of a failure as a wife in, in an ancient understanding. And so all of a sudden, this, this other girl who, who you choose comes along and, and becomes pregnant. She, she succeeded where you failed. As a wife where you failed to, to produce a, a son as an inheritance for Abraham, she succeeds. And all of a sudden, you, you feel like your ties have been slashed a bit. Yeah, your esteem has been lowered significantly. And you're kind of like, hey, what's going on? And so you feel that there's this natural um, despising from Hagar towards you, but, but really it's just the natural emotions of the circumstance. Yeah, it's a really complicated and tricky circumstance. There's, there's two options there on, on how you can kind of understand that. It's likely that it was probably a combination of both. We, we can't be sure for certain, but I think that's a particularly interesting way to think about it, that the, the, the perception of contempt from Sarah to Haggai, that, that there was actually nothing really going wrong. It was just the fact that she was pregnant and Sarah couldn't be. And so suddenly she felt, felt a bit uneasy about that. She felt pretty uncomfortable. And so, and so what did she do? The next step, and this is kind of the last one for, for this section of the narrative, is that Haggai is mistreated by Sarah. Okay? Mistreated... Uh, it, the, Verse 5, um, Sarah promises to Abraham that she's going to do this, that she's, she's going to treat uh, Hagar wrongly. Yeah, the, the word wrong there is used, wrong being accurately translated as violence. So uh, Sarah goes to Abraham and says, hey, basically I'm going to be violent to this new wife of yours, okay? And it's your fault. And Abraham kind of goes, I don't want my hands on that, yeah? I'm going to lack some leadership here and I'm going to say, I'm going to turn a blind eye, you do whatever you want. Okay? And so Abraham dismisses his new wife, Hagar, and any responsibility that has, he has to her and says, Sarah, you do whatever you want with her. Okay? And so the ball is thrown back in Sarai's court and she mistreats Hagar. The word mistreat is enough. And it's this kind of harsh, cruel treatment. In fact, it's the same word used to describe the oppression from the Egyptians to the Israelites back in the Exodus. And we know back in the Exodus that was pretty harsh treatment. The, the Israelites were slaves, and, and, and they were fiercely oppressed by the Egyptians as slaves in, in, in what they did. We, we read that back in the start of Exodus 1. 
And this is the same word used in, in this story here. We, we, we see this, this oppression from Sarah to Hagar. So Hagar is getting mistreated, and, and you, you kind of get to this point in the narrative, and you're a little bit confused, and you're thinking, why, why is Hagar mistreated? Oh, that's right, because she got pregnant and simply obeyed what Sarah instructed her to do. Do you, do you see the, the irony here? Do you see the injustice here? Do you see that something's really not quite right? Because Hagar simply did what she had to do. Hagar was told by Sarah to take Abraham as, as her husband to sleep with her, and she becomes pregnant. That, that's the natural course of events. And then Sarah sees that happen, and she, she feels despised, she feels treated with contempt, and she goes, hey, that's not right, that should be me, and suddenly she starts abusing her for the thing that she told her to do. And, you, and you're kind of like, what, that is so wrong, right? The treatment of Hagar is so wrong. She's used as this, as this puppet of society. She's used as this thing that you can do whatever you want with to accomplish a desire, and if it doesn't accomplish the desire that you don't want or you don't feel like it does, you do whatever you want with it. And so Hagar is, is mistreated, Hagar is abused, her, her opinion is neglected, and you, you get the sense that Hagar would really feel that she was invisible, that she counted for nothing, that no one really sees her, that no one really hears her, or that no one really cares about her and what she thinks. And so that's the context. That's the situation. That's what's going on. Those first five verses describe to us this is, this is what's happening in the world of Hagar. And it's a pretty, pretty awful place to be in. I wonder if you can resonate with Hagar in some respect. If you can get the feeling of anguish, the feeling of hurt that you must feel if you're mistreated by someone in such a way that, that Sarai was treating her. I wonder if you can resonate with the importance she must have felt not being named by someone, not being identified as a real person, but as, but as a property, just being used for, for what you're worth. I wonder if you can resonate with that. I wonder if you can resonate with the feelings of fear Hagar must have felt as she packed her little sackcloth in the morning, took whatever scraps she could get and, and, and fled, as we're about to see, tiptoeing out of the camp, making sure she didn't get caught because she knew she'd get punished if she did. As a slave, you can't just run away from your master. I wonder if you can resonate with the fear of Hagar. Or I wonder, as we're about to find out, if you can uh, resonate with the, with the loneliness of Hagar as she wanders along this path by herself. This pregnant woman in an ancient context, presumably a, a younger girl walking along the road in the wilderness by herself in the desert. Can you resonate with the, with the loneliness of Hagar? There's plenty to resonate with. She's in a pretty, pretty awful, awful place. Do you feel like Hagar does? Have you been in the situation where Hagar was in? might not exactly look like this. In fact, it probably won't. But, but do you get some of the emotions that Hagar would have been going through? Or equally, do you know someone who, who has? And you can share this with them. I think often, often in life we look at these stories or we look at these experiences in, 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 in our life in the modern context today. And the question that comes to mind is, hey, where is, where is God in all of this? What is God doing? Why is he absent? Come on, like we don't see God at all, except for, for Sarah using it as a manipulative device. Yeah? God is, is seemingly absent from this narrative. And it's pretty common practice for us when we're suffering, when we feel invisible, when we feel completely isolated and left out to go, God, where are you? What, what are you doing? Why can't I see you? Why can't I hear you? Why does no one else? What, what's, what's wrong here, God? And this is where I love the response of God. 
Verse 7 to 17, and this is where we'll, we'll hinge today. This is the response of God to Hagar. And this is some of the most beautiful verses that I've, I've found in, in, in recent times in the Bible. Let me, let me read from verse 7 to 17. I'll pop it up on the board for you. Reading from verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man, and his hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. And she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. I have now seen the one who sees me. And that is why the well was called Beer Lahar Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Don't you love God's interaction with, with Hagar here? It's a really precious, precious interaction to be having. Let's kind of unpack what's, what's going on here with, with the interaction. What, what are the things that we see God's essentially saying, I, I can see you, I can hear you, I know you, I care about you. Okay, Hagar, I want you to get that. Right? And today I guess he would say the same thing to you. I, I want you to get that, that I see you, I hear you, I know you, I understand your circumstances. I want you to get that. Even, even if no one else does, even if your master and your mistress, they fail you and, and the only response for you is to flee. I hear you, I know you, I, I see you and I really care for you and I understand your situation. Verse 7, God finds Hagar. It's interesting, he actually he lets her travel a long way. The, the, the location geographically that he finds her is, is a fair distance. She's gone for a really long walk. It reminds us that God doesn't always just jump in straight away. Sometimes we can wondering, on, where, where are you, God? What are you doing? But, but he's working in the background. It's not as if none of this he wasn't aware of, none of this he wasn't familiar with. And we'll see that, we'll see that unfold as we go. And when I read this narrative, I, I sit there and I go, okay, so we've got this slave girl who's just fled into the middle of the wilderness in, in, an, in an ancient context. It's a very dangerous place to be for a pregnant woman especially, solo, probably without many provisions. What must Abraham and Sarah have been thinking? What must the, the people back in, in, in Abraham's place have been thinking, the other, the other servants, the other, the other people working there? What must have been going through their mind? Was Abraham sitting there going, man, is my, is my, little, my little child in her, in her tummy okay? Like, is, 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 is my descendant going to be okay? The concern, was it for the descendant? Was Sarai sitting there going, oh, I'm relieved. There's no more contempt towards me. I can be the number one top dog again. Were the other servants sitting there going, what's the punishment going to be for Hagar when she gets back? Or is she going to be okay? Will she survive the wilderness? Or maybe they were sitting there going, oh, well, she's gone. 
time to move on. And, and as day after day after day after day goes on this journey, she, she just kind of slips to the back of their brains. Yeah? Invisible, unseen, uncared for, unknown, forgotten. Go on. Oh, yeah, that was that slave girl, Hagar. Yeah, she was nice. Yeah, she was cool. Yeah, yeah what, what happened to her again? Yeah, and, and the story of Hagar never lives on. It, it just dies there. To be honest, we don't know what they're thinking. The story doesn't tell us that. We can make our, make our assumptions, we can make our guesses, but the reality is the story tells us that, that, that God, God is intervening. God goes and God finds her. Regardless of what they're thinking back here, God goes, hey, no, I'm making a statement because this is one of my creations that, that I think is so precious, and I'm going to go and I'm going to go find her. And I'm going to go look after her. Where, where Abraham failed to provide for her and to protect her as his new wife, God goes, I'm going to protect in the wilderness as a pregnant woman by herself, I'm going to make sure she gets back home safely and I'm going to provide for her. I'm going to make sure she, she has what she needs. And God does the exact same thing for us. He comes, he finds us, he protects and he provides for us. And I think that's a really special, special first observation to, to see, a really special reality. And then God speaks. And this is the second thing that we learn about God's interaction with, with Hagar is that God speaks and God calls Hagar by name. Sarai, Abram, don't call her by name at all. But God says, I know you by name. Not just, not just function, not just role, not just possession. I know you by name, and I'm calling you out on that. And he interacts with her. He, he speaks to Hagar and allow Hagar to speak back to him. Yeah, this is this dialogue. For, for a slave in an ancient context to be able to speak back to a date, that's just un, unheard of, let alone a master. This is a remarkable interaction that Hagar is able to have. The value that that must have placed on Hagar, the specialness that she must have felt, God comes and speaks with her. And not only does he speak to her, but, but he speaks with her. It's, it's this two-way communion. It's a really special interaction. He calls her by name, and he speaks to her. When we get to verse 9, and God calls her you know, to return and to submit to Sarai, and we're thinking, oh, that's got to be uncomfortable, yeah, to return to the one that was, that was abusing you, that was mistreating you, that was neglecting you, to return to the one that you've just fled from, and you've, you, you're going to be in a whole lot of trouble when you, you get back, if you get back. And yet we see that Hagar responds because she has this, this hope, she has this assurance, she has this confidence that, that God actually is with her and God sees her. There's something in this interaction that, that changes her from wanting to flee to wanting to return. And it's the revelation of, of God's intimacy with her. God's saying, I see you, I hear you, I care for you, I know you, I understand your circumstances. We, we can commune together. And because of that, I'm going to give you this hope. And this hope is what's going to carry you back and carry you through the rough times when you get back into your circumstance with Sarai. That's, that I'm telling you, it's probably going to be uncomfortable. The Bible never records, and Hagar returns to Sarai, and they lived happily ever after. In fact, the Bible doesn't talk a whole lot about it, but you can kind of picture it. It's not going to be a pretty, a pretty situation. And yet Hagar returns. And why does she return? Because she has this confidence. She has this, she has this hope. She has this assurance that God, God is with her and God is for her. In verse 10 to 12, we see the, the next step in, in this narrative, the next revelation of God, is that he makes these promise, promises to Hagar. As we read in the following chapters of Genesis, we see these, these promises are fulfilled. It's quite remarkable. 
You've got three characters, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in, in the book of Genesis that are promised descendants. Remember? Ancient, ancient world, descendants, they're a big thing. They're, they're, they're an important thing. They're a good thing. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Three males are promised descendants by God. Hagar is the only female in the book of Genesis that's promised a descendant by God. A slave girl who's fleeing from a mistress, the lowest in society, and a female in that context was was a really low place to be, and yet she's the one that God says, I'm going to promise you descendants. What what a privileged position for Hagar to be, and what what a special thing for God to say to her, no, this is my promise to you, and because I'm God, I'm going to fulfill that promise. God makes promises to us, and and we can live in hope that he's going to fulfill those promises. There's an, an assurance there with God. So, so far we know that God finds Hagar, he calls her out by name, he interacts with her, he doesn't talk to her, he talks with her. And then he makes her these beautiful promises after he says to her, I want you to return to your mistress. It's the story so far, it's a beautiful picture and and trust me, it gets even more beautiful. Because the next thing that happens is, God God hears her misery. Ishmael, what um, God instructs Hagar to name the son, Ishmael means God hears. I think that's beautiful, isn't it? To be Hagar in the wilderness by yourself, to feel completely isolated and lonely, to feel like no one can see you, no one can hear you, and then all of a sudden God appears and he says, I want you to name your son God hears or God will hear. It's quite a kind of special thing and it goes on to say that God, God hears Hagar's misery. Yeah? We can often be suffering. We can be often in real painful circumstances. We can often be experiencing heartache and feel like no one else can get it. And quite often that's true, but there's one person who always will. God gets it. He hears your misery. He hears Hagar's. He hears yours today. He hears your suffering. He understands where you're coming from. Ishmael, God hears. Not only does God hear, but God sees. God sees Hagar. How precious to know that you're seen. It's not like a dream where you feel invisible. No one can see you, no one can hear you, no one understand what's going on. But you're seen. God, God sees you. He, he can hear you and, and he, he's, he's right there in Hagar's mix. Hagar then goes and, and she, she gives this name to God. She calls him El Roy. And El Roy means the God who sees me. That, that was the pinnacle for Hagar of, of this interaction, right? Yeah, she, she names God, Elroy, the God who sees me. You are the God who sees me. This is, this is the pinnacle of the interaction. After all that's happened has led up to this moment where there's finally someone that sees me. There's finally someone that, that understands me, that's willing to interact with me, that, that, that gets me. And it's God. Who Who better? Then God Almighty, the one we were singing about before, who is holy, 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 God Almighty, the King of Kings. And so she then names the place Beer Lahoi La Lahai Roy, meaning the well of the the well of the living one who sees me. The well of the living God who sees me. Yeah. We we have a living God who sees us. We have a living God who hears us. We have a living God who finds us and, and can sympathize with our weakness. He knows our misery. He knows our, our heartache, and he can share with us in that. And so God sees her, and then she gets to see God. 
and, and this beautiful picture of, of hope in, in which Hagar's kind of response is, have I really looked upon the one who sees me? You can say it this way more simply. Have I seen the one who sees me? Have I seen the one who sees me? It's a really beautiful picture. This intimacy with Christ where we can see, not necessarily an electoral representation, but we can, we can encounter with, we can engage with, we can have intimacy with the one who sees us. It's what relationships are all about. It's this relating to one another. It's this two-way communion. And that's exactly what, what Hagar gets to experience here. God in this encounter doesn't promise to remove the difficult circumstances. He doesn't promise to change things. But he makes, he makes two promises to Hagar. He promises that, that he's with us. He sees us. He hears us. He, he gets our misery. He, he understands he sees us and he hears us. He's with us in the present. And the second is he, he promises a future hope. For Hagar, this future hope was, was for her descendants, for a family line that God was going to provide and, and protect her in that, in that way. For, for us, we have a much greater future hope. We have a hope that we will see our God face to face in the fullness. That's our future hope. We have, we have God present with us now, but we have a much greater presence to come in the future. And that's a really special assurance that we can see that's a special hope that that provides for us during our times of greatest suffering. Have I really looked upon the one who sees me? In the New Testament, we, we, we see the exact same God who sees, the exact same God who knows, who cares, who understands. John 1.14 talks about the, the incarnate Christ. The Word becomes flesh and He dwells among us. He, he, God comes to His people on earth. And we have seen his glory. We have beheld his glory. We, we, we have seen the glory of God come through the person of Jesus Christ. And then following his ascension back up into heaven, Hebrews 4 re records this about Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then... Boldly approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Do you know there's mercy and grace for you abounding, everlasting in your time of need? And we can approach that throne boldly, approach the one who sees us, and, and, and we, in a sense, get to see him. This is the revelation of God. It's a gracious revelation, and the same reality is true today. Let me tell you, there's this woman named Hagar. She was the lowest of lows. She was isolated. She was abused. She was rejected. She was a slave, slave girl of the lowest class in society. But she was seen. She was known. She was loved, and she was cared for by the living one, God Almighty. And so today I would say, it doesn't matter your circumstances, we can take heart and we, we can have confidence and we can open that communion again with God because we have a God who sees. We have a God who cares deeply and intimately, who, who, who can empathise with our weaknesses. And we have a God who knows us more profoundly than we, we know ourselves. So the invitation is, as, as Hebrew records, Come forth to the throne of grace.
Why don't we take a moment to pray? Let me invite you in the quietness of your own heart to respond to that, to, to think through that, to approach the throne of grace, to open that communion once more afresh. Start by thanking God that you see me, you know me, you hear me. Believe that. It's true. Let me give you a minute to, to reflect on that. Jesus, I want to thank you that we have this hope, the hope of a God who is intimate, who sees, who cares, who knows, as an anchor, an anchor for our souls, as an anchor point, a solid rock, a firm foundation, a cornerstone. That's you, Jesus. And so I would say into the pits of our hearts right now that are struggling, that are suffering, that, that are feeling inadequate, that are feeling weak, that are feeling invisible, that as Samuel prayed, would you speak into that space for your servant, your children, we are listening. Would you open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to see that you see us, that you hear us, that you care for us. Would you help us respond to that today? We pray. Amen.